Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Gerald Posner. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Eileen Fisher, who helped make today's episode possible. A major upshot of renovating my closet last year was cleaning up my wardrobe. I'd much rather buy fewer things and invest in well-made pieces that are simple and timeless. This makes it a lot easier to decide what to wear in the morning and get out the door. Eileen Fisher designs responsible, high-quality clothing, and they're known for designing pieces that can be worn together season after season. Their process is circular by design. They take back what they make to create a new generation of clothing. To shop their new spring collection, head to EileenFisher.com. Right now, you can enter code GOOP25 at checkout to receive $25 off when you spend $100 or more. That's EileenFisher.com and use code GOOP25. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Gerald Posner is an investigative journalist, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Pulitzer Prize finalist, books including Case Closed and Why America Slept. And he just came out with his newest, Pharma, which is both fascinating and infuriating. Today, Gerald is telling us the real story of the American pharmaceutical industry. He'll tell us about the Sacklers, the family behind the rise of OxyContin, of course, but also how they got there. It's a fascinating history that involves the creation of medical advertising as we know it and how it was perverted to undercut federal systems. We also talk about the way natural human processes, like menopause, have become medicalized by the pharmaceutical industry, and the full story of birth control. He also offers some solutions for checking the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. One of the things that's remarkable about this is that we are dealing in pharmaceuticals in an unusual business because it's the only business in which we, the consumers, the patients, we pay the price, or we do through insurance, and the doctors who prescribe the pills don't know the price in many instances. So the drug reps have to convince them to recommend the drug, and they don't focus on the price. Let's cut to our chat with Gerald Posner. So congratulations. I hope you win many accolades and awards, and I think everyone needs to read Pharma. Well, Thank you very much. When you say that you were sort of found the size of the book daunting, when I started it, I said to Tricia, my wife and partner on all these ventures, 
we're going to keep it under 400 pages, no matter what. This is a story we can tell in 400 pages. And I found out that we could if we left big chunks of it out. Right. So the scope of it was to try to tell the real story of the American pharmaceutical industry. But in telling that, not just this dry recitation of drugs and dates and patents, but the real story of the people behind the drugs, the marketing of it to us as patients or as they think of us as consumers and buyers, yeah. and what the, the effects are. Because for those who are listening who aren't on a prescription pill, good for you. Yeah. But for those who are on a prescription pill, for those of you who will eventually be on a prescription pill, pharma becomes part of your life, whether a small part or not. And being an informed consumer, it's good to know who you're dealing with. Exactly. And so I thought, I mean, the reporting in the book is tremendous and mind-boggling. And it seems like one of the things that probably forced the book to its length is that when you started, obviously we're all familiar now with the Sacklers beyond their philanthropy to various museums in the world, including the Metropolitan Museum. And we understand their, you know, that Purdue and, and Oxy and sort of what the devastation that has, the way that that has architected a genocide and the way that they have participated or been the primary architects of that genocide. But then it, I thought the most fascinating part of the book wasn't even that. It's that your assumption, I think, our belief that that's when they emerged, but that Arthur Sackler, the primary, the, the, the man behind the machine, is actually responsible for so much more, including the creation of medical advertising. So how did you get there? And I mean, it is, can you take us through the tentacles? I mean, I, you, it's, it seems inconceivable to even understand their impact and reach. So Elise, it's so interesting because my cons one of my many fears in approaching the book was what to tell about opioids and the Sacklers because much of it's been told by some excellent reporting mm -hmm. over uh, the last few years. Great reporting at the Washington Post and by New York Times and, and other reporters and authors. So what could be fresh about that story? And what you just said is what's fresh is what I call, although I spend a lot of time on the Sacklers and opioids, is the story of what made the Sacklers the Sacklers, the story before that, mm -hmm. before OxyContin was even on the drawing board. There was this involvement of the oldest of the three Sackler brothers, Arthur Sackler, in the very early stages in the 1950s of promoting a, an antibiotic from Pfizer and creating a small ad company in New York City, he and a handful of other companies specializing in medical advertising called Medicine Avenue. And he revolutionized, as you mentioned a moment ago, alluded to, medical advertising in drugs as going forward. What we're used to today, the hard sell, is what Arthur Sackler perfected. The idea of a sales force going out and giving free samples and bombarding doctors with it, that's Arthur Sackler. The idea of doing ads that are right on the edge of being true, omit a key fact or have something else as a promotion, that's Arthur Sackler. He's the person who took Hoffman LaRoche's drug, Valium, and made it the first $100 million drug in drug history. He made it the first billion-dollar drug. And he, in the process of doing that, targeted women, specifically in these stereotypes of what they thought women were to sell to them. So the Sacklers, as a family, 
pre-Oxycontin, pre-opioids, pop up as a part of the drug industry in America in a fundamental way, and they keep popping up at different times in this shameless type of promotion. Even for those who remember Apollo 11, the landing on the moon, and, and can think of that, mm -hmm. Arthur Sackler had a little drug company that he and his brothers bought in 1952 called Purdue Frederick. It was downtown in New York City. Uh, it made a few remedies, uh, something for constipation. It also, they bought an antiseptic eventually called Betadine. And it turns out that Arthur had the great idea of selling that to NASA in the sense of bringing it along on the moon mission so that they couldn't bring back some extraterrestrial germ that might cause a pandemic on Earth and wipe out everybody who lived here. They did that, and then he got millions of dollars of free publicity, and they made more millions in, in terms of uh, what the family was worth. So there's a great tale. By the time you get to OxyContin, in my view, you understand what's going to happen, even though Arthur Sackler is no longer alive at that stage. He's taught his brothers how to do it, mm -hmm. and they do it. But this time, they're selling something that doesn't just clean your hands for disinfectant or help you go to the bathroom. They're selling something that could be deadly, and their ability to sell has lethal consequences for America. Yeah. I mean, it is wild, both the number of businesses and holding companies and the way that they refrain from having any of their own names on any of these entities. The fact that not only did he own his own advertising agency, he owned significant chunks of other advertising agencies. The fact that he created theoretically unbiased, pristine medical journals, which he then sort of planted his stories in, the fact that he then used those journalists to, or FDA regulators, to then plant stories and mainstream as a way of diverting. Because at that point, right, you could only, they were allowed to advertise to doctors only. So he found a way of advertising to the public by making things like Valium or whatever the drug might be part of pop culture by planting stories and things like Ladies Home Journal. Right. It's, it's a fantastic way of doing it because we're used to, we've grown up or we live in a society with direct-to-consumer ads, as the pharma industry calls it. So they advertise on TV. We see it all the time. But that didn't exist until 1997. So before that, people like Sackler, and he created the revolution created ways of loopholes. How do we advertise to the public since we can't? And the way they did that is they got journalists in the new health sections and, and uh, articles about science to cover their drugs. And they would prepare the articles essentially for them. They were press releases, but they were almost written as 1,200-word or 800-word articles. You need a little slight editing on it. And you would read about a new breakthrough drug, new, a masterful way to treat depression. What about this breakthrough here? There was even a point at which they got advertisements to run in the middle of National Geographic and Time magazine, and there was a complaint made to the FDA that they were advertising directly to the public. Sackler's defense was that the ads had a perforated edge. They were in the middle of the magazine, and the doctors could rip them out when they got them at their office before they put them out in the waiting room for patients to read, as if anybody would ever do that. I mean, he ran an ad with eight doctors who didn't exist, and later right. said, well, I never said that they were real doctors. He ran an ad once to show the benefits of a drug with x-ray pictures of two different people. They turned out they were they were two different people. He didn't say that. And one didn't even have the disease. He didn't think that was misleading. So, I mean, right? The, didn't he say, "Oh, doctors would be able to immediately." Doctors infer. should know that the only doctor who actually complained was the one doctor who complained. He's one in one hundred and sixty thousand. Nobody else complained. So he was constantly turning truth on its head in a way that the pharmaceutical industry embraced for one reason: if everything he did didn't make big profits, 
nobody would have paid attention to him. But everything he did turned out to be profitable. He had the right touch. He was brazen. And he came in at a time in the drug business in the late 50s in which there was a split of opinion. There was one side with one of the Merck family founders of, of Merck who believed that there was almost a quasi-public trust in a drug company, that mm -hmm. profits would follow if you serve the patient first. Boy, that idea was not long-lived because the new sort of entity that took over for, at the top of drug companies were the, the Jack McKings at Pfizer. They believed, forget it, profits are everything. You could sell a bad drug if you sold it well. And Arthur Sackler was in heaven with that. He fit right in. Yeah. And a, a sidebar on Merck, they, I mean, I know that they sort of maligned their sterling reputation with Vioxx, an opioid, and they, but they sort of, not to belittle, I think it was 90,000 90, people who died. They paid the fine. I mean, they, they took their medicine, not that there's any quid pro quo there. And, but they seem to have been one of the few companies, and I know today they're, they're led by a black man who's one of the only... Mm -hmm people of color in the Fortune 500. So they sort of emerge in some ways as a little, as somewhat of a, a hero company from their foundation. No question about that. As a matter yeah. of fact, even in covering them in the 80s and the 90s, they spent more money on research than almost any other company. They believed in putting that money into research. They gave away one of their drugs for yeah. river blindness that, uh, that nobody would have done. They thought they would have to cancel because they couldn't get the WHO or anybody else to fund it about $150 million worth of the drug, not just for good PR or promo, as, as somebody who is cynical might say, but they actually did that. And they did get caught on the Vioxx scandal. And as many other companies, it turned out when they went to litigation that they had covered up documents inside that showed that they had some warning signs about the dangers beforehand, and they weren't the first mm -hmm. to bring them to the public. They paid a large fine. There is in the story of pharma, they wear a black hat for most of the public. So there is a, it is like any other industry, meaning that you have some wonderful people who are really dedicated to trying to find a cure or solution to an ingrained problem or an illness or, or a, a disease that's killing people. And that's their dedication and that's their life. And on the other hand, you have greedy executives who are looking just to make money and you have people who are hiding the, the side effects of drugs so that they don't get caught and have it recalled. It's the good and the bad. It's yeah. the yin and yang of industries. The difference is that here, it concerns people's health. So we get a little bit more upset than if it's a car recall, if it's uh, about airbags, although that's life-threatening as well. But we're not worried about it being a shampoo that's just recalled a target. This affects people's lives, can be lethal, and that's why I think we get so enraged about the, yeah. the darker part of it. Yeah, and it is even Arthur Sackler, you know, there's moments when he seems quite likable and there are things that he did where, where particularly when there was no money involved where he absolutely did the right thing. I know he was instrumental in making sure that black people could donate blood, right? No, like they were barred and then he saw it as a social injustice. It's fantastic because the, I think that one of the things that happens in, in the 1940s in World War II, hard to imagine that the American Red Cross segregated blood. Mm -hmm. So they took blood from blacks and whites, and they kept it listed as black and white blood, even though everybody at the American Red Cross and in the medical community realized there was no difference between black and white blood. But there was a fear among some uh, of those in the Red Cross that if they were sending blood to the front lines to give to a 
a southern, uh, an Alabama boy who uh, was white and just got hit and he was getting uh, blood that he wasn't sure was white blood, he might have problems with that. It's a long story. And Arthur Sackler said, you've got to be kidding. There weren't many people protesting it. He was. And he had a sense of social justice. One of the things that happens in, in my work is I send off in the beginning of the book process requests for under FOIA, freedom of information request to the government for files that they may have on individuals who are now dead. That's the only time they release them. Sometimes you get nothing. Sometimes you get a treasure trove. Sometimes they still are producing 10 years later. In the 1980s, I was able to get the documents from the U.S. Army that showed we, the Americans, had caught Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor of Auschwitz, twice and let him go because of a whole bunch of bungled efforts. The government gave me those files from the Army. No one knew it until that time. So it looked like great reporting on my end. It was a great request for FOIA. In this case, I requested the Sackler documents, and what I got was a rather remarkable background around them about their political activism, so much so that Arthur and his brother Raymond were members of the American Communist Party at a time when it was really quite dangerous to be American uh, Communist Party members, 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. His uh, Raymond's wife was. And Arthur thought that Norman Bethune, who was a Canadian f- a physician who went off and fought for Mao Zedong and the, and the communist forces in China, was his moral exemplar. So it's so interesting to think we're talking about a group of Brooklyn-born boys of immigrants who are rags to riches in the sense that they had nothing. They went to school. They became, as brothers, three psychiatrists. So they didn't come to the area of drugs or medicine as complete outsiders. And then they not only built up an empire of sorts, but they started with the idea of communist uh, you know, redistribution of wealth. And here we're talking about a family worth 12 to $14 billion today, the 15th wealthiest in America, or according to the latest Forbes list, they somehow lost their yeah. uh, philosophy of redistribution of wealth along the way. The next generation didn't pick up any of those roots. But it's remarkable to think that they were Communist Party members who would then become the opioid kings, uh, kingpins, uh, a few decades later. I know. It's such a it's such a remarkable... And in it, you know, there's a lot to make many people sad and concerned beyond the actions of these individuals who, you know, and I know Arthur's second wife, you know, we talked about, we talked about this before, talked about his OCD, and he's like, essentially what was a compulsion, he was a compulsive collector, clearly compulsive about collecting money, but that throughout, you know, the saddest part is the and we are all aware of this as Americans, is the corruptibility of the government, failure to intervene. And even in recent history, that during these opioid trials, some of the people at the FDA who were most insistent about the drugs, danger of addiction, who were sort of the foes of Purdue and some of the other pharma players, were then hired by Purdue to protect and defend them. And that was a common practice to hire your enemies. And so that's that that was heartbreaking, I have to say. I mean, we want to you want to believe as an American. And I know this is this trust is com- continually abused that that the, that there's some handle on this and that people are not corruptible. Yes. And it is one of the parts of the story that repeatedly working on it, writing it. Reading it now makes my blood boil because we understand, unfortunately, we allow this open door to exist. And the open door is that we allow people who serve in government in regulatory positions, whether it's at the FTC, whether it's at the FDA, 
to leave their government positions and go to work for the other side, as it is, uh, because they know what they're doing. They can now go ahead and, and work for pharma. It would be fantastic if there was a rule that said when you leave the FDA, you can't work for a pharmaceutical company or medical entity for a five-year period. It would take away some of the incentive for doing that. But it happens, and it happened definitely in the opioid instance. The other problem with FDA and government regulations, we put our trust and faith in them, but they're overwhelmed. Yeah. They've always been overwhelmed. And there are a lot of people there, and I've talked to them, who really they haven't signed over for the big money to go to work for Pfizer or Merck or anybody else. They're trying their best, but they feel like they're putting their finger in this dike that's about to explode because there's just too much on their plate. They're responsible for making sure that all the generic manufacturers in India and China and all around the world who are shipping pills to the U.S. under license are correctly manufacturing them. They, they hardly have the time to make a visit to those plants mm -hmm. every 18 to 24 months. Uh, and in the US, they they realize only afterwards, I believe, when they've really missed something, unfortunately. So Ronald Reagan was coming into office. He promised to cut the budget and he promised to cut the FDA. Newt Gingrich thought the FDA was a bunch of uh, communists who were going to close down American free enterprise. They slashed the budget of the FDA just at the time that HIV and AIDS were coming out in the 80s. So the agency then had that to deal with and it was even more under pressure. I think that with OxyContin in particular, is a perfect example of how they got taken. Mm -hmm. Purdue went to them and said, we have an extended release formula, meaning that instead of taking a drug and it's in your system and it's out in two hours, it goes to work right away like if you take aspirin, and two to four hours later it's over, we've come up with a formula, a coating to put over the pill that will let it release evenly over eight to 12 hours. 12 hours is what they claim. And we think that since it releases slowly, you won't get the initial rush, the euphoria, Therefore, addicts won't be chasing it. It's not as addictive, and it won't have as many problems for abuse. The FDA accepted that and allowed them to put on the original label in 1996 that it was likely less addictive because of its time release, although there wasn't a single study to support that. Purdue had not had any studies or any information or anything else. The FDA said, that sounds logical. Well, it does sound logical in a sense, but to put it on the label was giving Purdue something that no other drug company had, and they used like that like a hammer with mm -hmm. their salespeople when they went out to push the drug with doctors. We're less addictive. How do you know that? The FDA says so on the label. And the FDA realized by 2001 that that was a real problem. But in five years, Purdue had dominated the industry. I want to talk about detail teams and drug reps and drug Barbie and drug Ken and that evolution. But first, I also want to talk about that that unintentionally damning nine, was it nine sentence letter that ran, did it run in JAMA or uh, the National, New England Journal of Medicine by a researcher and an, an, a postgrad, might be getting that wrong, saying, and they were talking about hospitals where it, opioids have been used in a very controlled way for a very short period of time that there was no evidence of addiction or abuse. And then that, had, so how did that become the most cited study. It was not a study. Yeah, how did this, I mean, how do these things happen? So you see this, at least in, in other areas as well, it's the perfect storm, right. right? It has to be. And this is the perfect storm. You have some doctors 
it, who legitimately in the early in the 80s are starting to think that you know what we think that opioids are tagged too harshly for being addictive and they're being underused they're only being used at end of life for cancer patients and we see pain patients coming to us here at Mount Sinai and up in uh, Sloan Kettering who could use opioids and they can't get them so they started a reevaluation a few of them at the edge and then all of a sudden as you said a letter was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the most prestigious medical publication probably in the U.S., by two doctors, one a researcher, and said that in their analysis, some 35,000 patients, there had only been three instances in which anybody had developed an addiction or abuse problem from opioids being administered. Now, that was hospital patients who had received opioids during treatments for surgery or other items. They got them for one, two, or three-day period in a hospital environment, controlled environment. And when they went out, there was no follow-up to find out, by the way, did they go to the street and buy heroin the next day? Did they stay on opioids? Did they try to get drugs? They just said there was no addiction in the hospital. They never asked for opioids before they were again released. So we only saw three people who seemed to have problems. It was as unscientific a study as you could imagine. It was a letter. Now, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, is respected because it does peer review of every article it runs, but it doesn't do peer review of letters. So the letter ran, but it was quoted as though, you know, there was a report in JAMA that said that it's almost impossible to get addicted to opioids. Only three people did out of tens of thousands. And over time, when that little letter was reported in Time Magazine, the New York Times, and other respectable journals, they would forget what it really was, and they would say, a study has mm -hmm. concluded, a thorough study, an in-depth analysis. And that letter, in many ways, I believe, was the impetus for changing people's views. It was only a few years ago that a group of intrepid researchers decided to see how many times it had been cited, which turned out to be thousands of times, and how many had a caveat about it or brought any concern to it, and it was literally a handful. So until recently, it had gone unchallenged as dogma that it was less than one half of 1% in the very worst of cases that you could have addiction, and that letter was cited repeatedly. So crazy. And so, and then the detail men, which a Sackler invention, and the idea, I think, was originally that they were scientists and they would go visit doctors. Obviously, this is way before the internet or the easy dis dissemination of information and train them in new drugs and tell them all about them. And then that had has evolved. That became like a sales team. And now it's, I remember from my, my own childhood, sort of having to let my mom ran my dad's front office and it was sort of like running, a, a tr trying to like stop them at every door as they were coming with um, samples. Didn't you deal? Didn't you uh, like file the samples? Or I, I sorted samples and you saw the samples. I That's sorted fantastic. samples and looked for ones that had expired. And I organized. My dad worked with in the practice with he's a pulmonologist, and then it was gastroenterologist. So I just I sorted all of their samples and because they wouldn't let them. Linger. It was interesting. They had. I think all of the doctors in that practice had sort of an aversion to drug reps, and their ways, which then you know, and it's become like dinners, trips, a lot of that's swag. Right. We had a lot of drug swag in our house. Yeah, that's very interesting. It has become that. So you think. I mean, it, so it's, it starts with. You're right. Arthur Sackler and and Pfizer back in the late '50s. They have an antibiotic called teramycin, which is very uninteresting. It's it's Pfizer's first big antibiotic, and they think, how can we sell this? And they have eight detail 
at that time men. There, uh, they, there were no women yet as sales reps. And Sackler said, essentially, you need to hire 200 more. You need to saturate the country because selling it in person to doctors is going to make the difference. And one of the things I think, I don't know if your father found this in his practice, but they never left notes behind. They would leave promotional materials that the company had done. They, they could say things that might be a little bit pushing the edge for what the FDA had approved, but nobody would be able to prove that. And the best of them were the ones who formed a personal relationship. Maybe your dad and the rest of his practice didn't do that. But the ones who went in, they knew a little bit of background about the doctors. They could ask about whether their golf game was good and how the, the, their son and daughter were doing in college. They became almost friends. And then they would go back to these doctors and give them the reasons why they should keep prescribing the brand name that was more expensive at a time maybe when a less expensive generic was out or a less expensive competitor drug was out. That's the value of the detail squad. And they've proved themselves over the years so that all the drug companies became addicted to them in some ways. One of the things that's remarkable about this is that we are dealing in pharmaceuticals in an unusual business because it's the only business in which we, the consumers, the patients, we pay the price, or we do through insurance, and the doctors who prescribe the pills don't know the price in many instances. So the drug reps have to convince them to recommend the drug, and they don't focus on the price. Mm -hmm. They just say, this drug from us is really the best drug. And the doctors, if they like the drug rep, may continue to say that because they think it's just as good as the new drug out. Why not? But that drug may cost us or our insurance company five times what a rival drug was. So why stay with the brand name? For the doctor's perspective, if they aren't committing malpractice, they're still recommending a good drug, they're not looking at the price. And that's the amazing part. They don't know how much they're feeding mm -hmm. the bottom line of the drug companies by prescribing that. It's an unusual business. Yeah. So if you said to many doctors, if you go in, if people, you know, your listeners go in the next time and say to the doctor, how much is that going to cost me? They'll have no idea. And even if they knew what the list price was of a drug, they don't know what it's going to cost the patient because we all pay different amounts depending on what our insurance is. So it's such an unusual business. Yeah. The, uh, you, you mentioned also, I'm sorry, just one thing, the swag that goes with it, the gifts mm -hmm. and everything else. Insys, which is one of the, the drug companies that had an opioid product out, and John Kapoor, who was at the head of the company, has been uh, charged with criminal violations. That case is coming to an end. Uh, there may be a criminal uh, a guilty plea on it. One of their drug reps literally was a, a former dancer in an adult club who gave a lap dance to one doctor to convince him to prescribe the drug, and it worked. So you talk about yeah. swag. That sort of pushed the limits. <laughs> Even by Arthur Sackler's standards, that was something that yeah. he would have said, oh, that's innovative. We'll get back to Gerald Posner in just a second. Mike work uniform is a jumpsuit or jeans with a sweater or blouse. I'm pretty much in sneakers every day. I try to mix in some color, but I like to keep my clothes relatively simple. And at this point, I really try to only buy staples or investment pieces that I can wear for years to come. Eileen Fisher is one of those designers that makes a good case for investing in classic, well-made clothing. They are a design-driven brand that appreciates clothes through the lens of form, function, and feeling. That means they believe clothes should have a sense of ease and movement, and that women deserve to feel comfortable in every sense. And they also believe that clothing should be made responsibly. They use quality, sustainable materials to create timeless pieces that last season after season. They're committed to doing business for good by taking responsibility for the resources they use and by advocating for the people who make their clothes. 
to shop simple, sustainable clothing, see their new spring collection at EileenFisher.com. Right now, you can enter code GOOP25 at checkout to receive $25 off when you spend $100 or more. That's EileenFisher.com and use code GOOP25. Back to my chat with Gerald Posner. One of the, an amazing stat in the book in the context of Oxy is that they Purdue started giving bonuses to their detail teams. They pushed them, sort of whipped them to get out there. And their tactic was go to the doctors who prescribed the most. And they had a database to determine where these prescriptions were coming from. And I think there's a stat in your book that 3% of doctors were responsible for prescribing 55% of the oxy prescriptions. It, it, it's, and it, that is not unusual compared to other areas as well in terms of hypertension medications, in terms of diabetes medications, insulin, and that. You'll find a small number of physicians often responsible for many or a small number of clinics responsible for many of the prescriptions. The reason that the detail teams have become so good in the beginning, they just went to every doctor. Then over time, the data started to come in that was being collected by a company that Arthur Sackler had a small piece of, IMS, International Medical Sort of Data Services. That's a multi-billion dollar independent company today. But they could tell the detail team, don't waste your money on this doctor over there. They aren't prescribing anything like that. Concentrate on the high-performing doctors. Concentrate on the doctors who write the most prescriptions. So it's it was perfect sales because you didn't have to go to doctors who were going to turn you away. They wouldn't end up at your father's clinic where they yeah. really weren't that enthusiastic. They would end up at some gastro's do- uh, clinic where they were uh, bigger prescribers. And as a result, it feeds one another. Right. We can offer you a symposium in Hawaii. You can come and listen to new developments about our drug. We can provide you a golfing expedition to Scotland, and we'll also be talking about the drug. We can make you a member of our Speakers Bureau, which Purdue did, at ten, twenty, and $30,000 in appearance. You can receive over a million dollars. We can help the funding in terms of websites for some of the projects you're doing. So they feed the high prescribers in many different ways, and it becomes a hand-in-hand process where both are benefiting in different ways. The drug companies benefiting from at the bottom line in terms of profits. The doctors benefiting from their exposure and their feeling that they're important players. And and side hustle money, right? Right. Which is certainly corrupting. So let's talk to you about the the drugs over the years that were developed and directed at women that had some really horrible effects and sort of the the unwinding of that and and the good and the bad again right so like the pill the first pill was revolutionary for women and liberating us from giving us control over our right. reproductive health yet it it wasn't studied and so then we came to understand it had 10 times as many hormones as required. Yeah, so it's really interesting because in many ways, uh, there's a chapter title I call, which is they clean their own cages. And that's from a doctor who said women are really being used as experiments. They, they, are, the, they are the experiment on this. And he was talking about the pill. And they even clean their own cages because we don't even have to come in and, and worry about them. And we'll find out what's happening. He thought there was problems with it. And he turned out, unfortunately, to be right. So Cyril, a pharmaceutical company, has a product in 1960. They had it on the market for a while for premenstrual syndrome. But it turned out they were able to use it as the pill. It was the first reproductive pill approved. And in 1960, it was revolutionary. There were hardcore conservatives that fought it then as they would today. But it, it, when it was approved by the FDA, 
was approved for no more than two years of use because the FDA was worried about what they called a lifestyle drug. Even though it was reproductive uh, control, it was the first time that any medication had ever got an approval from the FDA to be taken not for an illness, not for something that was wrong or feeling bad. It was to be able to control, you know, when and if you wanted children. So it was a new type of, uh, you know, what they dubbed a lifestyle drug. And those of us in society who viewed this as a great social breakthrough were so enamored and so enthusiastic about it that we embraced it from the start to say this is important and didn't maybe as test it as well as it should have been tested. So when the first report started to come in that there were blood clots, that there were problems with some women, the FDA looked into it and said, uh, statistically insignificant. Well, not insignificant if you happen to be one of the women with mm -hmm. blood clots, that's for sure. It wasn't until 1975, it was coming out earlier, that all of a sudden under Senate hearings with uh, Gaylord Nelson, that we really had people come forward and testify about the dangers of the extremely high levels of estrogen that were in the pill and how many people had been affected. And it's one of those stories where, in fact, as I say, women were used in this essence as an experimental group. Mm -hmm. Yes, it served a great purpose, but at a cost as well in increased uterine cancer, increased cancers, blood uh, clots, and in deaths. And I think it got overlooked in part at the FDA because it was an issue that was affecting only women, quote unquote, and I don't mean that to say only women, and those who chose to take it. And so it was a double whammy. It wasn't put on the fast track for, we better take a look at this. Oh my God, this is uh, something to do with high sugar levels. It may cause stroke and affect men and women, and it may lead to death. This was something people were choosing to take, and so there was no impetus at the FDA to get involved in it right away, and that's unfortunate. It took congressional hearings years later to finally bring the issue up. And then speaking of things that women were choosing to take, and Sackler's methods. Premarin, which is pregnant mare's urine, that was fascinating to learn mm -hmm. about, which was the, you know, the first sort of, the idea being, what did, what did the primary doctor involve, the one who became quite famous for talking about how women were, were castrated? Oh, and fe that, uh, Feminine Forever, Robert Wilson, Robert his 1964 Wilson. book. Yeah, yeah New that York we needed to take estrogen from 9 to 90 and that we were essentially sexless creatures. What, what, what an amazing thing to think that you have this man with his wife, Thelma, who was assisted him, but really he's the driving force. We now know, as I talk about it in the book, that he was backed by Wyeth, and the, who was putting out Prempro. And how do you sell, how do you medicalize menopause? How do you take a natural passage? One thing, Tr Tricia uh, did a book years ago about menopause. Uh, my wife, what does every woman have in common if you live long enough, menopause? Whether mm -hmm. you have children or don't have children, you have menopause, it's this passage in life. And in some societies, like in India, it's viewed as this period of passing into even more wisdom. You're, you come into the temple. It's a, it's a different process. But in America, how could you medicalize menopause? What a great idea they had. And I mean great, not as in great good, right. but as in great bad. He had a book called Feminine Forever in which he said that his mother had become a eunuch, okay. that she was incapable of, she'd lost her sexual desire. There was no sexual life for her. Her skin became dry and wrinkled. She dried up. Her, she had vaginal dryness. She was, it was just the end for her. The end and of, she was intolerable to be intolerable around. Intolerable to be around. And, and she was, therefore, the end of femininity, the end of being a woman. That was the end of your life. But you didn't have to have that. 
all you had to do was take Prempro. There was this fabulous little thing from Cyril that would restore all of this and vigor to you and you'd be young forever, feminine forever. That idea of youth, that idea that you were selling that, that you, you the, otherwise you were finished, that if you admitted you were in menopause, there was something wrong with you, that you had to treat it so that you were losing estrogen, well, you must have to replace it later on. That made logic to the men who had designed uh, uh, Prempro. And it turns out, of course, that the danger of that would eventually become known because those high levels of estrogen increase the risk of uterine cancer for 10 to 14 times more than if you weren't taking them, also at levels much higher than they should be. What did the drug companies do, by the way? They didn't say, oh, by the way, we were wrong. Oh, you're right, we shouldn't medicalize menopause. They said, okay, yeah, maybe that's bad. We'll come up with a, an alternative. So they came up in the 70s with Prempro, which is a combination of estrogen and progesterone. Mm -hmm. That's new. That'll be better for you. Then the Women's Health Initiative in 2000 said, oh, by the way, that's not so great either. If you stay on it for more than five years, it could cause increases in cancer and everything else. So they lowered all the estrogen and progesterone levels to new low levels. And they said, well, you can take this. So there's always an answer when there's shows to be some harm. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, what they did is they took an, a, 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 you know, a passage of life, they made it into a medical condition, and then they targeted people psychologically to sell the product. And it, it's one of those stories that just makes your blood curdle. As it does, by the way, I must say, before the pill and before Prempro in the 50s when Arthur Sackler and other drug companies are selling antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications to women under the belief that they are hysterical mm -hmm. and that they they need to calm down. Men need it. Men need those medications because they want to sell them both men and women in order to be able to be successful at business and not get an ulcer. Women need them so that they can be a little calmer, not so hysterical, and do more housework. Now, you think I'm making it up, but the advertisements from that period are absolutely startling. And I mean advertisements run in medical journals of showing a housewife with a vacuum uh, for Ritalin and saying, Ritalin makes your day better, and as though she can do more vacuuming. And you would think, oh, this is a bad Saturday Night Live uh, episode, but it's not. It was real pharma and real sales. Yeah, no, it's so disturbing. And the fact, too, that, was her name Teresa? That his wife, yeah. who was sort of his partner. Thelma, yeah. Yeah, Thelma, sorry. Thelma, in pushing for this high-dose estrogen, had herself only really told her son when she was dying, a, a, was it a double mastectomy? She'd had yeah. breast cancer twice, but couldn't say anything for fear of destroying her husband's legacy. They knew that during the time that she developed breast cancer, that if it was estrogen-based, because not every breast cancer is, but if it was estrogen-based, that that would destroy his career and at the same time ruin his reputation. So they kept it quiet. Everybody wanted it quiet, she told her son. She was a co-author with him of one of his early papers that talked about how women were eunuchs after menopause. So it's really remarkable to think of this era. We've come a long way in, in decades in terms... Today, the, the marketing is more subtle. It comes right. at you in different ways. There's no question to say it's, it's not just as heavy-handed or more so, but in a, in a more refined manner than it was back then. I mean, Arthur Sackler believed that you had to sell to men and women differently, and he sort of had that old-school thought. The U.S. Army, at government taxpayer money, conducted experiments in the 1950s, the executive monkey experiments, they called them, in which two monkeys in experiment were given small, they had electrodes attached to their feet and they would be zapped on the bottom of their feet. And then they put the experiment 
control would put a, a little lever next to one of the monkeys. If they operated that lever, it stopped the electric jolt from coming to both of them. The monkey would, monkeys are pretty smart. They learn that very quickly. They would push that button all the time, that little lever, and stop the electric currents from hitting either of them. Eventually, over time, those monkeys would die. And when they did an autopsy, they found out that what they called the monkey who operated the lever, the executive monkey, had cirrhosis, had uh, all types of calcium buildup in the arteries, had ulcers. The monkey who didn't operate the lever was fairly clean inside, didn't have all of those organic illnesses. So they concluded from that, Arthur Sackler did, the executive monkey, that's men. Men have to go out and earn the money to bring home for the family, for the women and children, 1950s. They're the breadwinner, and they have to also show society they're strong and tough, so they can't show any weakness. They are under great stress. They develop ulcers. We need to give them anti-anxiety pills like Librium, Valium, and Miltown so they don't develop ulcers and they can be more successful. Women, on the other hand, they're the non-executive monkey. They don't get the organic illnesses like ulcers or heart disease, but they get very high strung. We need to give them all those medications so that they can just function better as mothers and as housekeepers. And now you look at that and you think, you must be kidding. It can't be true, but unfortunately it's part of pharma. Which is also very confusing about Arthur because he was married, he typically, he was married to doctors and powerful women who operated within his businesses. Absolutely. His wife was a psychiatrist. His second wife was a psychiatrist. His first wife was a part of the hidden business interest that he had. And he knew and respected women on a different level, but he was selling yeah. to middle and mass America. So the stereotypes in America at that time, as a matter of fact, it's remarkable that when Sackler was making those ads, nobody was able to go to him and say, Arthur, do you really believe this or not? Or is it right. just a way of selling? But what he did know without any doubt, was that 95% of all doctors in 1960 were men. So he was selling in the late 50s and early 60s to men in their own stereotypes about women. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it worked because they prescribed them as a result. If they had gone, if those detail squads had gone out to sell Valium or, or Librium and had gone to doctors and said, by the way, you need to give these to all your patients because it could stop ulcers, they wanted to sort of make it look as though they had developed a drug that was specific for each sex and you could develop it and assign it for both. And that's why women in the 60s start to use Valium initially for PMS, for premenstrual syndromes, long before it's medicalized as, a, as menstrual disorder in DSM-5, way mm -hmm. down the road, doctors were prescribing antidepressants and or anti-anxiety pills for people who had difficult uh, periods. And nobody, w it wasn't approved by the FDA for that. Nobody had given that the right. But doctors have the unbridled right to prescribe any drug for any other off-label purpose. And Sackler and those who sell it were very good at encouraging them to do so. So what, you know, as you, sir, as you think about this incredible book and put it out into the world and think about sort of where we're at, what are your predictions and what are your recommendations? I mean, is it time for the world of drug reps? Like, is it time for that to go away? Is, there t is it time for our ability to harness big data to understand who the overprescribers are sort of in our community. Are there other interventions from the FDA? I very much like the idea of barring a commercial venture five years after you leave a government agency. What do you predict? Like what do you, and what, what do you think is going to happen? 
what I hope is going to happen is different than what probably what will happen. That's okay. clear. Let's that's go clear. with what you hope will happen. Oh, what I hope will happen. I mean, there are a couple of very quick fixes, for instance, on drug prices. People say, oh, drug prices can't be controlled. Some of the candidates for uh, Democratic uh, nomination have some really good drug plans, but none of them mention two words that I talk about in the book quite a bit, uh, orphan drugs mm -hmm. and something called PBMs, phar pharmacy benefit managers, middlemen that have created this middle layer of drug distribution and jack up the price with rebates that are hidden, no disclosures. So I would have full transparency on what these pharmacy benefit managers take from drug companies in terms of rebates and make sure that they can't do it without disclosing it, and that would cut out a fair amount of price increase that's taking place right now across the board. And in orphan drugs, there's a loophole in which companies, even on Botox, a drug that's used repeatedly for, for cosmetic purposes, keeps getting approved under this small little law for drugs that were supposed to be determined for genetic conditions that affected 200,000 or less. We have mass market drugs being uh, sort of under this loophole, approved under a law that they shouldn't be. If we were able to close those loopholes up, the most expensive drugs are often so-called orphan drugs. You would bring down some of the prices, and that could be done literally within one congressional session. Will it be? I'm not sure. The I would love to be able to block people leaving government service and going to drug companies, but what they will do is what's happened on orphan drugs. They set up consulting firms so they don't go to the drug companies, but they set up consulting firms that drug companies use to know how to work the system to get their orphan drug designation. That we probably can't stop, unfortunately. And one thing I would do is transparency is so big. I know that's an overused word. We hear that word we, and we say, oh, yeah, but in this case, it's critical. We now have laws that allow us to see how much money doctors are taking from drug companies for different purposes, for research and for speaking fees and for going to a, a promotion. You really have to look for it. It takes me a while to find out what a local doctor took from all these different companies. It's there, but it's buried in government files that are not easily accessible. I would like to have a, a, a sort of a database, a website, where you could put in the doctor's name, cough it up, and see their entire history of what they've taken. Not just their prescribing history, if they are listed as one of the top 10 prescribers on a drug, but then how much money they got from the drug companies who make the drugs that they are a top 10 prescriber for. That's not going to tell you necessarily that the drug is bad or that they are doing something criminal, but it's going to tell you that they have a financial reason for doing it that may not be in your best health reasons. Yeah, no, I love all those ideas. Mm -hmm. And just to just to clarify on the um, prescription benefit manager, PBM, or is it PMB? That The way that that works is it's all very obfuscated. I mean, there's a chapter about it, and I was trying to unwind yeah. it, but that, let me just see if I can get this right, that insurance will that essentially there's a margin in between there's a spread right. in the price so, that is not known to anyone except the PBM PBMs. and they they could take $400 or That's, it could be $40 so they, they're only they've only existed since the, like 1980 uh, Medco and companies like this and they came in originally just to do the, the equivalent of payroll. You know, you have companies who do payroll for, yeah. uh, for a corporation. And they say, we file all your taxes and we'll do, take the withholding and, and that. So they came to the drug companies and they said, you know what? You have all this paperwork to do with uh, because insurance was starting to grow and there are all this, uh, there's now managed care. So we'll do the paperwork for you. Drug companies said, great. Okay, that sounds good. So they came in just to do the paperwork. And then over time... Drug companies come up with a formulary list. Anybody who has insurance who has to fill a drug knows, is your drug covered or not, if it's a brand-name drug? Is it on one, two, three, or four? So the PBMs came up with the list, and drug companies would say, 
don't put us on the excluded list. Put us on a good list so we can get prescribed. Our drug costs $200. We'll give you an $80 rebate on every prescription filed if you put it on your list. Mm. Now, they don't have to disclose that. So they put it on the list, the PBM does. We think they've put it on the list because it's the best drug or the best price. No, it's on there because it's giving them the biggest rebate. But the pharmacist who gives you your pills to your hand doesn't know how much they're getting. No one knows how much they're getting from the drug company to do it. In some cases, the drug companies could have pills as loss leaders. They want to make a big stake in the marketplace. They want to dominate it, and they're willing to take almost no profit. The PBMs are making the money billions of dollars. The pharmacy benefit managers, the three biggest in the country, are among the top 25 firms in the country right now in terms of size. They've grown an enormous size without anybody really knowing what they're doing. They're unregulated. There's no federal law about them. They aren't required to disclose anything. And to me, it's disgraceful. And I don't use that word lightly because there are a lot of disgraceful things in pharma that they have been able to put themselves into a key part of the distribution of pharmaceutical drugs so that the effect on us is they are earning billions of dollars. And when I say us, we, the patients, the American public, are paying the price. They don't exist in any other country. Why am I not surprised? They've taken their place here in America, uh, and they don't exist in Europe and other countries where the governments directly negotiate with pharma companies for prices, which is another thing that should be done. Yeah, no, it should be done. And I know... Just finally, that in the process of uh, when the FDA became became more robust and and much more intense and intentional about drug approvals, and they started requiring clinical trials and things that are expensive. One of pharma's they went from you know sending in eighty pages about a drug to just trying to bury the FDA with information. And I think you know I I think your book with you know however many 83 ring binders stuffed that would take you know be impossible to comprehend and i think that that's one of the great the, the biggest problems with healthcare in this country is that it's so overwhelming and so hard to understand and therefore kind of boring and people just don't know how to engage with it and so i really hope people read your book because it is both interesting and clarifying and revelatory and having even grown up in that environment where my mom was, you know, filing claims, et cetera, I still could never quite understand it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you uh, very much. I, uh, it, it's uh, been a, uh, a great last four or five years looking into this, and I uh, still continue to marvel that I live in this wonderful country of ours, the only country in the world that allows drug companies to set their own prices with no limit, that lets drug companies take drugs and change one molecule, so-called Me Too drugs, and get a patent and protect it for 17 years. So I now understand how they game the system. I understand how they continue to be the most profitable companies in the world at our expense. And I hope it's a wake-up call for a lot of people to say enough. Yeah, and I hope people read your book and see the holes and then go and plug them. Yeah, especially (laughs) in Washington. We can plug them there. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Gerald Posner. For more on Gerald, head to posner.com. That's P-O-S-N-E-R. And make sure to pick up a copy of his book, Pharma, which is out now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Fiona asks, what's the most challenging part of raising money as a founder? 
Oh, Fiona, there are <laughs> many challenging parts along the way to raising money, I would say. I think for me, it was hard to raise money in the early days because there were so few women venture capitalists and we are such a women-focused business and a business focused on servicing women. And I think that that gender hump was really, that was a difficult one. I think also for me, the fact that I was starting as a celebrity was definitely a hurdle in some cases. But, you know, if you have a business or if you're, if you're thinking of starting a business, it's one thing. Just make sure you have a really bulletproof business plan. And if you've already started your business, it's really all about the unit economics that you have and also what is the addressable market, like how, how big can you grow it and, and how. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.